I'm Shumit Ganguly. I'm a professor of political science here at Indiana University in Bloomington, and I also hold the Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations. And my guest is the noted Indian writer Amitav Ghosh on uh, the program uh, Profiles. It is my uh, pleasure to have this conversation with him, and this is expressly a conversation, not an interview, and it's in that spirit that I intend uh, to proceed today. I'm going to start, Amitav, uh, with uh, sort of your earlier incarnation. Um, you were trained originally as an anthropologist. I mean, you are a profession, an anthropologist by profession, at least originally, or if not by profession, certainly by training. You've practiced your craft briefly and then chose to become a creative writer. Is that a fair characterization? No, not at all. <laughs> I always wanted to be a writer. And, uh, you know, anthropology was a kind of way stop in a, in a sense. I was a young writer in Delhi, in, living in India, and I wanted to travel. As you probably know, for a young for a young man from a poor country, it's very hard to travel. And uh, academics is just about uh, the only way you can do it. So I applied for a scholarship, and I, you know, I got this scholarship. And anthropology uh, was a very nice way to travel. I went to Egypt. I went to North Africa. I did this work. My entire PhD took two years and three months. So it, uh, you know, when you say training, it sounds like something much more sort of, uh, much more onerous, like being in something for like five or six years. Whereas this was really not quite like that. And uh, you know, I really enjoyed uh, doing anthropology. I think it's an interesting and I mean, it's a fascinating subject. But uh, you know, by the time I finished uh, my degree, I knew that anthropology was not going to be my future. I think you're being unduly modest uh, because uh, this is an anthropology degree and a PhD from a major university. The fact that you chose not to pursue it is an entirely personal decision because there's a really ethnographic quality to particularly your nonfiction. Uh, yeah, you could say that. But, uh, you know, um, before I was an anthropologist, I was a journalist. And I think uh, that is also very much a part of the way I write, you know, which is that uh, I pay, pay close attention to what is happening around me. And that part of, uh, you know, my sort of uh, uh, my background really, uh, I think, also very much informs what I do. You know, I because I was a journal, journalism was the first thing I, I ever did professionally, so to speak. Uh, my instinct is always to have a notepad in my hand, uh, you know. <laughs> Which certainly came in handy, obviously, when doing fieldwork yes, in yes. Egypt and North Africa. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, actually, you know, the first sorts of fieldwork I ever did uh, was uh, as a journalist. I mean, I remember one of the earliest pieces I ever wrote was on Orissa, when I, uh, on, 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 on sort of village, on villages in Orissa. And I traveled around these sort of rural areas, again, with a notepad in my hand. So I think, you know, sometimes these sort of disciplinary boundaries are not as, they're not as significant as they might appear, you know. Right. You are a sort of a trespasser in the best sense of the word. I mean, I recall the work of Albert Hirschman, who even wrote an entire set of essays called Essays in Trespassing, <laughs> because he was an incredibly uh, fecund economist who's really was not confined by the strictures of his discipline and uh, wrote about a variety of things well beyond sort of 
traditional economics. And I see you very much in that spirit. I mean, look, uh, I, I study anthropology at Oxford. And my supervisor, he was a man called Peter Leonhardt. Uh, he was actually, I mean, if you want to use that word by training, he was a literary critic. Uh, he, had, uh, he had studied with F.R. Levis. You know, so, the, uh, you know, he came into anthropology from a sort of literary, uh, from the literary end of things. So, uh, and I, I think one of the great things about Oxford in those days was that uh, disciplinary boundaries were not as rigid as perhaps they now are. Let's plunge a little bit into your work. And I want to take you back to an essay that you wrote many, many years ago, which is in a number of anthologies these days, was, I believe, originally published in Granta called Four Corners. Mm. And it is a brief but brilliant in my view, ethnographic account of an important tourist destination, which has a very fraught history, uh, where four states meet and where the Navajo Nation uh, really suffered quite grievously in the process of west uh, westward expansion. And you even bring up Kit Carson, something, someone we had heard of in comic books as children in India. Um, uh, and this is a place, as I said, where four states meets Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. I'd like you to briefly talk about that and how you chanced upon this. <laughs> oh, well, this was a long, long time ago, uh, 1988, really. Uh, That's correct. Know, that was the first, uh, first time I visited America. I, I was invited to spend six months at the University of Virginia. And while I was there, I decided to do the sort of uh, the roadie thing, you know. Uh, so I, I got a car and uh, with a, along with a friend of mine, I drove around uh, all the way around America, you know, from Virginia to California and, and back. And on the way, suddenly, uh, you know, I saw signs to this place called Four Corners. And, uh, you know, and everybody seemed to be heading there. And it turned out that it's a great sort of tourist destination. And it's just a sort of flat bit of desert. There's nothing there, except that notionally four, four state lines cross, you know. And it was incredible to see this thing because, you know, people would stand on their sort of toes uh, so that they could be at exactly the point where the crossing is. So it struck me as something very, very curious because, uh, I mean, in effect, it's a kind of pilgrimage to latitudes and longitudes. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, there's nothing of significance there, really. It's just a sort of notional sense of uh, uh, something happening. Uh, and I was quite fascinated by that, you know, and uh, so I wrote that article, yes. But you don't just talk about the tourists and the trailers uh, and the uh, campers uh, there. You also weave in uh, a fairly tragic history um, uh, that is implicated uh, at that particular place. Oh, yes, because, uh, you know, that is exactly where the Navajo Nation is. And it's extraordinary just driving there. One sees these celebrations of Kit Carson and so on, statues to him. I think there's even a park named after him. And really, he was, uh, I mean, uh, for for the Navajo, he was, shall we say, a scourge, you know. I mean, he he was a terrible sort of figure. So, yeah, you do see these kinds of uh, a strange kind of... Uh, absolutely paradoxical uh, sorts of elements of, uh, you know... Uh, incorporated into the landscape. And there's no uh, sense of sort of like a monument that expresses some contrition about, you know, the destruction 
of an entire culture because there has been sort of, I would say, at least half-hearted attempts to come to terms with a particularly tragic history in this country. You know, it's working its way into civics textbooks, into school textbooks and the like, but no such plaque saying, you know, that some terrible events also took place rather than this eulogy to Kit Carson. No, not that I saw. Um, But, uh, you know, this was a long time ago. Uh, and maybe there's something there now. But I would say that actually, uh, you know, of, uh, let's say, new world countries where uh, this sort of erasure of indigenous populations has happened, uh, America is the place where, uh, the, uh, the U.S., I would say, is the place where there's the least grappling with these, uh, you know, with this history. I mean, in Canada, for example, if you go to any university or, you know, just any any venue, before a talk or before a, uh, you know before a concert, people almost automatically now say uh, you know uh, 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 they acknowledge the first peoples you know, and that's also increasingly the case in Australia, uh, but I've never seen it happen in America. That's interesting because recently I was in New Zealand and there was a very explicit nod towards uh, the Maoris, uh, and uh, uh, the initial announcements were made in mm. two different languages, uh, the, you know, in a language I couldn't comprehend at all, but there was the English uh, equivalent thereafter. Uh, one could say these are just investments in tokenism, but at least these are symbolic gestures that I think matter to some degree. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Their absence is very striking in America because certainly in Canada and Australia, you, I mean, as you say, it's a kind of, uh, you know, it's a sort of pious tokenism, if you like. But again, I mean, there is something symbolic of some uh, of some symbolic importance there. But I've never seen that happen uh, anywhere in America. Uh, New Zealand is an interesting case because uh, actually um, the population figures of New Zealand are very different from the other settler uh, settler nations, you know. Uh, I think the Maori actually amount to almost 50% of the population. And they are a very, very powerful and visible presence uh, within New Zealand. Yes, that was clearly noticeable on this, even on this brief uh, visit uh, to New Zealand. Um, Let's uh, uh, return a little more directly uh, to your work. Uh, Other than Four Corners, for which I I hold in extraordinarily high regard, um, and as a general principle, I hold almost all your work in exceptionally high regard. Thank you. But uh, the, uh, the other essay that I just find absolutely captivating, and I must confess I've even assigned it to my students, is The Imam and the Indian. Because it it is, I mean, there are few things that one reads that one genuinely says are profound. And yet, the profundity of this essay not does not come from, you know, a long exposition on your part, but simply a conversation uh, with an imam. And you let the conversation literally speak for itself. Um, and it's about, I think, a real encounter that you had during fieldwork yes. uh, in Egypt uh, with an imam. Uh, and uh, it actually 
teases out a kind of a leitmotif in your work, uh, which runs through your entire work, if, if I'm not incorrect. And that is this concern about defeated peoples, about victims of imperialism, about human uh, uh, suffering and marginalization. Before I drone on, Perhaps you would uh, talk about this a bit more, about the antecedents of this, a little uh, telling the readers, enticing the readers to go read this <laughs> essay to track it down. Uh, uh, sure. I was living in this little village uh, in, uh, in Egypt, and it was a very strange circumstance because, you know, no Indian had ever been there before, and no non-Muslim had ever been, been there before, you know. This so, is truly remote. It's not that it's very remote. It's in the delta of uh, of Egypt, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a place that no that no foreigner would ever visit. You know, it's a it's a place called Behera. It's a it's a province called Behera near near a town called Damanhur. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very out of the way kind of place. So it's just a sort of agricultural community, uh, you know, uh, in rural Egypt. So yeah, I was there, and I was a kind of incredible anomaly, you know, because I was a non-Muslim in this completely Muslim area, and every day, you know, somebody or the other would say to me, uh, you know, why don't you convert to Islam and so on, and you know, I mean, these conversations would go on and on. Uh, so uh, he was uh, uh, he was the local imam of the of the mosque, uh, you know, and uh, he was also a kind of um, uh, sort of. In, indigenous doctor, you know, I mean, he would do indigenous medicine, so to speak. He would talk to me quite often about converting and so on, which uh, which I had no interest in doing. Uh, so one day, suddenly we would, uh, we met on the, um, actually, just on the street. And again, as usual, he started talking to me about uh, converting and so on. And I said, no, I really don't want to. And then, uh, and then he, he launched into this sort of thing about, you know, in your country, Everything is really bad. I mean, um, you know, people are oppressed. They, Egyptians have a great horror of cremation, uh, you know. And he said, oh, and you cremate your dead and this and that. And But, you know, what was interesting is that within a few minutes, the conversation went from talking about religious difference to talking about uh, guns and bombs. The conversation went like this. Your your religion is, uh, the religions in your country are terrible. And from there, it went to, uh, you are, uh, your country is really backward. And then I found myself saying, <laughs> my country is not backward at all. We have, uh, we have all sorts of advanced things like nuclear weapons. <laughs> Quite unlike you, I'm afraid. It's very unlike me, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, because I'm, I'm very anti-nuclear. I know. You wrote an entire essay in The New Yorker after the Indian nuclear tests. Yes, that's right. So it was this strange sort of interesting slippage, you know, how... One, one, one went from talking about sort of cultural difference to talking about development, you know, to talking about develop, uh, material development, progress, and all these material things. And uh, yeah, so it made a profound impression on me, you know, it made a profound impression on me because it seems to me that, uh, it seemed to me then even that actually a lot of conversations which appear to be about religion are actually about something else. You know, they're about some other idea of uh, people's place in the world, you know. And that struck me as very tragic because I think it's an interesting thing to talk about religious difference, you know. 
but uh, that slippage occurs so easily i mean it occurs so easily when you see for example the ways in which a discourse happens around islam uh, uh, in the west very often that you know um, there's often a sort of uh, a discourse saying that uh, they should have a reformation you know or they should follow this path or they should follow uh, that path so you know what purports to be a conversation about religion often becomes a conversation about something else altogether Yes, that's uh, frequently uh, the case. But uh, to dwell on this just for a couple more minutes, I've never thought of you, and it's certainly not evident uh, in your writing anywhere, uh, as being a particularly nationalist uh, individual. Uh, you know, there's a kind of uh, an attempt at genuinely sort of embracing human confraternity in, in your work, an attempt uh, to do so, uh, and a fairly explicit one. And yet he had struck a kind of a nationalist chord in you. Was this simply a function of youth? Yes, I think it was all those things. And, uh, you know, my, uh, uh, my, uh, that, that piece, The Imam and the, uh, and the Indian, ends with my saying, really, that this is our common defeat, that, you know, uh, a civilizational conversation becomes a conversation about armaments, you know. Um, uh, exactly. And yes. it's stated very elegantly. <laughs> I'll never forget mm. the way uh, it's phrased at the end. And that really delivers uh, an extraordinary, it, it comes across with extraordinary force, the last two or three lines. And that's why <laughs> I urge listeners to go track this essay down uh, and read it. Uh, perhaps it's available on your website. I don't think that is available. Uh, actually, the, uh, that essay became the sort of core of the book that I went on to write. In an antique land. Uh, in an antique land uh, some years later. Yes. 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 And people should rush out and purchase it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm Shumit Ganguly. I'm a professor of political science here at Indiana University in Bloomington. And my guest is the noted Indian writer Amitav Ghosh on the program Profiles. shift our uh, gaze a little bit, uh, and I really want to talk about this in a somewhat expansive fashion, because I will make a confession here that I think this is your finest, in my humble judgment, your finest novel ever, The sh uh, Shadow Lines. Oh, thank you. Because of the sheer sweep of the novel, you go from communal riots in Dhaka yeah, the, the capital of, of now Bangladesh after 1971, uh, of East Pakistan prior to that, and then London during the Blitz. 
And yet the prose is extraordinarily spare. You don't go into sort of gory and sanguine details about the communal riot. You don't talk about the usual uh, sort of banal descriptions of you know, buildings that have been crushed under the weight of bombs and V2 rockets uh, and the like. And yet you manage to convey the horror of living under the Blitz and being trapped in a communal right. And having been trapped in one myself twice uh, in this brief lifetime, there is this kind of abject fear that it instills in a person and a sense of utter helplessness. And the passage is not especially long, as I recall, the one about the communal right. And it really unsettled me. Oh, really? Uh, you know, uh, uh, The Shadow Lines is, uh, was a book about forms of violence, you know, forms of collective violence. So in a sense, it's really sort of contrasting uh, the situation of war with the situation of, uh, you know, social violence, like a com communal riot, if you like. So in a way, that's the sort of contrast that's kind of working there, you know, why all sorts of narratives get attached to war, to situations of war. Why in, say, a, a, a situation of a communal riot becomes, as it were, almost unnarrativized, you know, why, why they're so rarely spoken of, why they're, they're so rarely sort of emerge into a public discourse, you know. So, yes, I mean, um, it was very interesting uh, to write about uh, uh, the Blitz. I went to the Imperial War Museum in London and I looked at a lot of uh, a lot of uh, war memoirs, a lot of diaries, uh, you know, diaries from the Blitz and so on. So, uh, yes, it was very interesting even to do the background work, you know. I can well imagine. Now, how did you, uh, I mean, you know, one reads descript brief descriptions of communal riots in Indian newspapers. Occasionally, Indian activists will produce an account uh, of riots. Uh, um, uh, but uh, you've told us how you managed uh, to, uh, to capture the background of uh, living under the Blitz by doing this kind of uh, historical work at the Imperial War Museum in London. Um, but what about uh, the background developing a sort of a real sense and this kind of granular sense of being caught in a communal riot? Well, uh, like you, I've been caught in communal riots. Um, uh, you know, uh, I have very vivid memories of riots, um, you know. Uh, riots were not an uh, a not infrequent occurrence, uh, you know, d during my childhood. Um, I'm sure that was the case with you as well. Yes. So for us, uh, you know, those memories are very vivid. And that's essentially how I got around to writing about it. Because I started mining my memories of, of, of riots and, you know, the sort of very visceral fear, as you were saying, that one feels and the very visceral sense of, a, you know, a world coming unstuck. I mean, it was really a sort of sense of just mining, uh, you know, one's own sort of memories of the past and of, you know, situations that one had been um, that one had been caught in. The uh, you know, it, in fact, the depiction is uh, so vivid without being sort of uh, in granular detail is that it actually reminds me of an important work in political science, which many of my students read by Donald Horowitz, a noted political scientist at Duke. Uh, there's, a, and there's an enormous tome that he wrote called The Deadly Ethnic Riot. And in that, 
he sort of outlines the characteristics of a pre-riot situation. There's this eerie calm that descends on a neighborhood. The rumors mm. circulating about an incident that has happened and which community is implicated in it. Then the occasional sound of a bomb going off. The ululating sounds of a crowd gathering and, you know, getting ready to pounce on some hapless soul. And in many ways, your depiction almost mirrors uh, Horowitz's account. And mm. so I wanted to bring this to your attention. Does Horowitz's uh, uh, material come from, uh, where does his material Well, mostly come from? from fieldwork. From uh, India? Uh, no, from uh, some in Sri Lanka, some in Malaysia, uh, and I don't, I'm not sure if Horowitz actually did fieldwork in India, but I do know in Sri Lanka and Malaysia and other parts of Southeast Asia. So it's not, um, you know, uh, um, something that it's simply he arrives at by deductive reasoning. Uh, this is based upon some field experience. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's exactly, I mean, uh, those uh, those elements are exactly right. I mean, that, uh, you know, there is this kind of very calm, rumors flying. But, uh, you know, it's very interesting to see also the ways that uh, race riots take place in America, you know. I mean, because there are sort of uh, clear continuities of, uh, you know, uh, that same sense of a kind of eeriness of a sense of, uh, you know, uh, something, something is about to happen. And you sense it in your bones, but you don't really know what it is that's about to happen. Before it actually explodes yeah. um, uh, with deadly uh, yeah. consequences uh, for many. Well, this gives us a fairly good <laughs> glimpse uh, into uh, this. But, you know, yeah. the, the whole situation of the riot is uh, just uh, increasingly commonplace now. You know, that's one of the curious things, you know, growing up in India, uh, we always thought of riots as, uh, you know, a sort of, sort of lingering legacy of the past that would eventually disappear. To me, watching Egypt from a distance now, you know, it's really uncanny how, how, how many riots there have been in Egypt recently in these last two or three years. And, uh, you know, in, in other parts of all around the Mediterranean. Do you remember the riots in Greece yes. uh, uh, two or three years ago? Uh, but then there were riots in Spain. And I think we are heading into a period of extreme unrest, uh, you know, around the world. I mean, of course, in some parts of the Mediterranean, it's absolutely, I mean, exploded beyond any um, uh, redemption, really. I mean, like Syria, for example. But I do think that we are heading into a period of extreme unrest. And uh, in some curious way, it's sort of strange to think of, uh, you know, those experiences we had as as children and seeing how much they've become now a global phenomenon. Of course, these riots are not religious riots necessarily, right. though in Egypt they were yeah. uh, in several instances. Yes. Uh, you know, um, but these riots, uh, you know, many of these riots are actually around uh, issues of, uh, uh, you know, economic issues. But in Greece, there was also a sort of, uh, uh, some sort of uh, anti-immigrant aspect uh, um, to them as well. You know, I'd like the point uh, that you made, if we can dwell on it for a second, uh, that growing up in India, um, sort of the standard explanation, uh, 
that was proffered uh, by parents and mm-hmm. uh, others uh, was that, look, these riots, it's, they're tragic, they're unfortunate, but they're really a legacy of uh, the terrible violence uh, that accompanied the partition of India, mm-hmm. and these things will dissipate over time. Um, that, you know, the, that, in fact, it's almost generational, that it's these people who were really scarred uh, by the extraordinary violence that accompanied the partition, and those memories are so deeply embedded in them that the slightest provocation sets something off. But the tragedy is that we've seen in India that riots are often engineered. They're not really simply a legacy issue anymore. Oh, yes. But uh, very much engineered. Yes, and I think it was the 80s that saw this transition uh, in the Indian subcontinent. The 1983 riots in Sri Lanka were, I think, uh, very much along that pattern. And then the riots in Delhi in 1984, which were... uh, And then uh, we've seen recurrences of that in 1991 after the destruction of the Babri Masjid in India, and then again in, uh, you know, what happened in Gujarat in 2002. So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, so uh, very far from fading away, uh, these riots do seem to have taken on a new um, um, avatar, if you like. That's exactly the word I was going to use. Uh, And it's profoundly uh, disturbing. And of course, the consequences are uh, you know, inestimable and and terrible. Let's turn a little bit now towards your recent uh, work, particularly. And correct me if I'm wrong. Again, from the Glass Palace onwards, uh, your work, uh, particularly your uh, n- uh, fiction, has dealt quite unsparingly with the many cruelties of 19th century imperialism. Um, uh, and the legacies uh, of imperialism. What explains your obvious interest in and fascination with this subject? (laughs) I have no fascination whatsoever with imperialism. I, uh, you know, my book, The Glass Palace, really began as a kind of family story, you know, and I would say to to a greater or lesser degree that's true also of my last three books, uh, the uh, the Ibis trilogy, you know, I'm interested in in history, especially history as it relates to family experiences, and uh, you know, it, it's impossible to write about uh, the histories of families like yours and mine without accounting for the fact that they existed in a colonial context. You know, that was the water that they were swimming in. So it's, I mean, my interest is not, uh, you know, imperialism as such. It's rather with the immediate Indian past, if you like, you know, with the past of families like yours and mine. And, uh, you know, th- there's just no way around it. I mean, that was that was the backdrop. That's well, that's absolutely true. No, I didn't mean to suggest that you had an, ob- you know, you had a particular interest in imperialism as much as the effects thereof, as much as the consequences thereof. Contrary, and I will name names here, contrary to sort of attempts by people like Neil Ferguson, to sanitize uh, the imperial enterprise and suggest that it brought the values of the Enlightenment, that put an end to sati and uh, s- uh, similar fictions, um, uh, and that how beneficial the, uh, the construction of railways was to the integration of India um, is com- utterly mythical notions, which have even found them their way into popular discourse. 
which which I find absolutely horrifying. Uh, your work is an important antidote to such notions. Uh, yeah, I well, I certainly hope so. Uh, you know, uh, what I try to do in my work is to explore the ways in which uh, people made their lives, you know. And, uh, you know, that was the backdrop. It was incredibly destructive. And yet, you know, uh, people got on with their lives. They, um, you know, uh, they they managed, you know, even within uh, that background, people, you know, they lived, they loved, they laughed, you know. So that's an aspect of my work as well. I mean, what I like to look at is really the ways in which people transcend their circumstances, if you like. And I think you certainly I would say that is an aspect of it that interests me very much, you know, that how how do people really uh, survive, you know, extremely difficult circumstances? If we might uh, home in a little bit more on a couple of your recent books, how is it that you know so much about colonial Burma? Well, you know, my family, uh, parts of my family settled in Burma. You know, it was a very common thing yes. for uh, Bengali families to move to Burma. And, uh, you know, part of my family went to Burma. Um, uh, they lived there. Then, uh, you know, after, after independence, they moved back to Calcutta. And I grew up, uh, you know, hearing stories about Burma. My father had fought in Burma during the Second World War. He was in the British Indian Army. So from him, too, I heard a lot of stories about Burma. So I became very interested in Burma. And, uh, you know, I wrote, um, I did a lot of research. I spent some, a lot of time, uh, you, know, you know, doing this research and also, uh, you know, visiting Burma and so on. So it became a sort of great, uh, you know, it became a great obsession of mine. And it's been incredibly rewarding, actually. Uh, I mean, the bo- my book, The Glass Palace, has been translated. Uh, there are three translations of it in, uh, in Burmese. And two years ago, it was one of these translations won the Myanmar National uh, Literary Prize. Uh, so, you know, that was, that was, uh, that was really a, an incredibly powerful moment for me. And after it won that prize, I went, uh, I went to Burma and I went to Mandalay, you know, uh, a large part of the book happens in Mandalay. It's, it opens in Mandalay, if you like. And uh, I had this meeting, uh, this huge sort of public function uh, where literally hundreds of people came and all the major literary figures of Mandalay were there. And, you know, many of them said to me, they said, uh, you know, you've showed us an aspect of our history that we ourselves had forgotten. And to me, that was really, really moving. You know, it, I mean, I felt that I had done something really important. Certainly. I mean, there is a extraordinary level of uh, historical and cultural uh, detail that informs uh, uh, that book, uh, which I've read with, uh, with much uh, care and, uh, and interest. Let's turn um, in our remaining uh, time to your more um, recent uh, trilogy, the last one, which is uh, on the verge of being uh, published uh, later this year, first in India and England, and then subsequently in August, I believe, in the United States. There's a theme that runs through all three, and it has to do with the families involved in the opium trade and the consequences of the opium trade. And I believe the last one culminates in the opium war. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Uh, the last book, Flood of Fire, is really, uh, yeah, it's set in the, uh, in the opium war between the years 1840 to 42, yes. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you chanced upon this, other than the fact that you know, all of us growing up in India, particularly in Bengal, uh, where uh, I recall as a child that there were legal opium addicts who could actually get a, con- uh, a certain um, sample of opium on prescribed days to support uh, their habit. Uh, and it was permissible under the law. I do, I, that may be anachronistic now, but I and also there were still some places in Chinatown where people suffering from sciatic nerve damage could go smoke opium and thereby find relief. Huh. I don't remember that part of it, but uh, certainly, you know, when we were children, we were given gripe water. Yes, you remember? I vividly Hayward's remember. gripe water, and that's essentially a tincture of opium. Oh, I was unaware of that, uh, yes. <laughs> that there's a trace of opium? Uh, yeah, I mean, not just a trace. I mean, it's a tincture of opium, yeah. Oh, okay. But, you know, opium is in everything. I mean, um, uh, Imodium, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the stomach me- medication. Medi- medication, right. Uh, that, ha- uh, that has some sort of uh, derivative, I think. Uh, if you actually look at, uh, you know, the, the if you actually look at the composition of the medicines that you take, you'll fi- you'll often find, you know, that uh, there are sort of um, opium derivatives uh, in medications. Opium is a, a fairly sort of miraculous substance, you know. I mean, it's been uh, the oldest uh, uh, medication known to man. I mean, you know, uh, without opium. I wonder how people would have survived in a sense. But what what we're talking about in the 19th century and the 18th century is when the British turned it, when, uh, you know, the British colonial government in India suddenly decided to expand uh, uh, opium cultivation because they needed uh, they needed to export opium to China to, uh, uh, you know, in order to uh, to balance their trade, uh, you know. So it it was an economic necessity that made them sort of expand uh, the cultivation of opium uh, in India. And, you know, they began to push this drug in a very large scale uh, towards China. Uh, a lot of American merchants were involved in uh, in the opium trade as well, including members of very prominent American families. And for China, it was a disaster. You know, it was a public health disaster. It was a financial disaster. So in, 18, uh, uh, in 1839, uh, uh, the Chinese government, the emperor, uh, decided to try, try to stop the opium trade. And he, uh, he sent uh, a very senior bureaucrat uh, to uh, Guangzhou, to Canton, to try and put an end to the opium trade. And that was when the British decided to attack China. And so they said... Uh, uh, and it it was the perhaps the first war fought in the name of free trade, and they said, uh, you know, you're violating the rules of free trade by trying to stop opium, and uh, we won't allow this. So they attacked China. Those were their grounds for attacking China. This reminds me of Robinson and Gallagher's famous work about the imperialism of free trade. Yes, but uh, other than demography, why China? Why not? Southeast Asia, which is in closer proximity to India, at least by along sea lanes, uh, a lot of opium was exported to Southeast Asia. I mean, in fact, the Dutch, uh, the Dutch uh, colonial government of uh, what was uh, you know the uh, the East Indies then, Indonesia now, right? Uh, opium was a very uh, very major source of uh, um, of revenue for them, 
And, uh, you know, Singapore essentially, uh, for, through the 19th century, was essentially sustained by revenues of opium. Uh, the, the French colonial government in, in, uh, in uh, Indochina. Yeah, Indochina. Uh, they too, uh, you know, so, uh, I mean, essentially, opium was the financial foundation of all the European empires in Asia. Isn't it curious, though, that this is not something at the forefront of uh, historical research? Or is am I missing something completely? You know, there has been, uh, uh, I mean, there have been several uh, works on it, uh, you know. Uh, there's a uh, there's a wonderful uh, there's a great historical Carl Trockey uh, who's uh, who's written uh, extensively you know about the opium trade uh, uh, the 19th century opium trade and the role it played especially in Southeast Asia he's a Southeast Asia specialist uh, but uh, again I agree I mean uh, you know uh, opium was really in a sense the foundation of 19th century glo- globalization uh, you know uh, financial globalization. Uh, it was opium that supplied uh, so much of the money for the, um, you know, for Britain's industrialization, and for uh, for American industrialization. And it's so strange that uh, it's it's actually completely papered over. But that's yeah, you know, uh, what I've come to realize is that so much of what we are taught as history is really just propaganda. You know, I mean, it's it's what people like to think about their past. So for Britain and for, uh, you know, for many Americans, uh, they like to think of a sort of rosy vision of, you know, what they were doing. Perhaps this is a natural human impulse. But in fact, you know, uh, the reality is that uh, this is something that, uh, you know, both Britain and America were deeply involved in. I mean, this is actually quite counterintuitive, I mean, uh, because it's not sort of uh, woven into the warp and woof of sort of standard historical writing. I mean, yes, you allude to particular works of specialists on Southeast Asia who bring this trade to light. But in sort of standard historical accounts, this does not figure as an important strand. It doesn't. I mean, it's it's as if the people, have, you know, have just decided to tell themselves this sort of, uh, um, you know, this nice story about 19th century capitalism, about 19th century industrialization, this kind of heroic narrative of how it was done. It was actually Asian peasants creating this commodity, selling it, you know, to Asian peasants uh, in China. Uh, who really, you know, it was on their labor uh, that, uh, you know, so much of uh, European and American industrialization was built. You know, you're obviously a highly successful and acclaimed novelist and for very good reason, but I can't help thinking and saying that I think you missed your calling. (laughs) You really should have been a historian of global history. Um, and make a contribution. It's still not too late uh, with your training. I know you don't like that word uh, as an anthropologist with a historical bent. I think you should find a separate métier alongside your novels. Well, uh, Sumit, if I had been a historian, my work would have, uh, (laughs) you know, if I had written about this as a historian, I suspect, uh, you know, my work would have vanished into that same ether where other <laughs> other historians who've written about these subjects, uh, you know, where, where their work has gone. I think it's because I write as a novelist uh, that, uh, you know, uh, as a historically informed novelist, 
uh, that, uh, you know, people take cognizance, as you were doing, of, uh, you know, um, uh, of this past, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the great, one of the really rewarding things about the work that I've done is that I find that, uh, you know, I, I didn't know how historians would respond, frankly. I thought very likely they'll be, uh, you know, hostile or dismissive or something, you know, because there are disciplinary boundaries and so on. But actually what's been really wonderful is that historians have been very, very welcoming of my work, you know, um, uh, uh, and they really, because, uh, you know, that's been a sort of really unexpected uh, kind of reward. They've been very welcoming. That uh, Many, many historians have entered into sort of conversations and dialogues with me. And uh, I feel very gratified by that. Well, this is certainly heartening to know that professional historians, you know, take your work uh, seriously and don't simply dismiss it as, you know, fictive uh, or an embellishment of some minor set of incidents um, around which you weave a, a narrative uh, account. Um, that is certainly uh, something uh, um, uh, to be uh, uh, quite uh, pleased uh, about, and I'm indeed happy to hear that. I've been engaged in a conversation with Amitav Ghosh, whose latest novel, uh, which is coming out in the United States uh, in August, called The Flood of Fire, which is uh, the, the culmination of a trilogy uh, which deals with the opium trade in the 19th century in Asia. And um, it has been an absolute delight um, to engage you in this conversation uh, about your work and the roots of your interests in a variety of subjects stretching from the 19th century to the present day. I wonder if you had any closing thoughts uh, before we bring this to a formal close. <laughs> well, my closing thought is uh, it's been a real pleasure to be talking uh, to be talking with you and thank you very, very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure entirely. Thanks once again uh, for gracing this occasion. Thank you, Shumit. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.